1 Peter chapter 1, and the passage assigned begins at verse 6. I have not suffered too much in my life, I have to say. The passage that we're going to talk about today is one that talks about suffering, and I'm no subject expert on that subject. Um, I certainly acknowledge that there's a lot of people who have suffered a lot more than I have, and I'm sure in this room there's people who have suffered a lot more than, than I have. But as Benton reminded us on Sunday, Christians can expect to be shaken. And there will be times when we will go through times of suffering. And I think sometimes our chief concern when those experiences happen is to find a way out. We want out of the situation. And uh, we want the suffering to stop. And I sometimes ask myself, what would I be willing to do to get the suffering to stop? A week and a half ago, I actually had a toothache. Not sure why, but uh, got pretty bad over the weekend. The dentist's office didn't open until Monday. And by Sunday night, I was in, in pretty rough shape. I was thinking, I'm going to go down to the shop and get a pair of pliers and pull this thing out myself. How far will you go to cause the suffering to stop? Well, I got that dealt with on Monday fairly quickly, and uh, some antibiotic dealt with the issue, and it went away. I, I haven't suffered very much in our life, but sometimes we just want the suffering to end. But the Lord has a purpose for suffering, and so we're going to uh, read a little bit about that and think a little bit about it this morning. Let's start with prayer. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word. We pray that you would bless our thoughts today, our discussion, our, our consideration of this passage. We pray that you would speak to us through your spirit, help us to understand the word of God clearly, and bless us in this time, we pray. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So the passage assigned is in 1 Peter chapter 1, reading from verse 6 to the end of verse 12. The beginning of verse 6 says this, In this you greatly rejoice. Uh, the passage opens with the words, In this, and so in order for us to get the context, we need to go back a bit. So we'll read from verse 3. Our passage assigned is from verse 6, but let's read from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or in what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them, in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ 
and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. I want to start by thinking just a little bit about verse 7 to start. Verse 7 speaks about the genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, which perishes, though it is tested by fire. And this uh, expression is interesting. I want to think in particular of these two words, genuineness and precious. The word genuineness is sometimes translated the trial of your faith. The idea of this word is that it is indicating a an experience which tests us and and evaluates us in effect with regard to the value of our, our faith. It's related here, equated here, with the idea of testing gold, right? You put the gold in the fire to determine whether it is true, whether it's really gold and whether it's pure. And gold is refined in the fire and it is tested to determine, to determine that it is that it is good and that it is true. And that's the idea of this word genuine. Uh, it is the testing of our, our faith to determine that it is the real thing, that it is genuine and that it is solid and that it is sound. And then it says that this is more precious than gold. Precious means something of great value, something of, of high worth. We might understand that our faith is of high value and of great worth, but in fact, uh, commentators would tell us that what's really being considered to be precious here is not so much the faith as it is the testing of the faith. It's the testing of faith that is of high value. It is the passing of the test, more importantly, that is of high value. The approval of that faith, that is of high value. It's of high value to God. God looks down and sees the faith of those who are his. And when it's under the pressure of fire, he sees that it's genuine. And that's precious. That's precious to us and it's precious to God. We could ask, what is the value of faith? What is the preciousness of this testing of faith? I want to think tonight about three reasons why suffering is of great value. The testing of our faith is clearly seen in this epistle and elsewhere in scriptures as being accompanied by suffering, times of trial and difficulty and problems in life. And so we could stop and ask, what is of value? in these sufferings, the sufferings of a believer. Appreciating its value, understanding something about why it is so valuable and precious will help us to persevere in the times of trouble and the times of difficulty in our lives.
Well, the first reason I suggest to you why we can see that suffering is of great value is that suffering enhances our joy. I'm talking here about Christian suffering, of course. This isn't just a general statement about suffering in general. It's a statement about a Christian suffering because the Lord has, has allowed some trial to come into his life for any number of reasons, as Benton pointed out on Sunday. But it is of value because it enhances our joy, according to this. Look at verse 6. Um, in this you greatly rejoice, it says. We could say, in what? In what do they greatly rejoice? Well, we would look at the verse ahead, and we might conclude that what they're greatly rejoicing in is their salvation, uh, the salvation that has been brought to them, uh, or that is coming to them, that is ready to be revealed at the last time. And indeed, we do rejoice in our salvation, or we ought to rejoice in our salvation, shouldn't we? And perhaps that's what it's referring to, but maybe it's referring to the keeping power of God. We are kept by the power of God through faith. And so that's something else we can rejoice about. But I've appreciated some commentators who point out that the Greek uh, construction of this paragraph and of this, this term would make us to think that, in fact, what they're greatly rejoicing in is actually the last time it's referred to. The time that is coming when this salvation will be revealed. And that is what they are rejoicing about. They're rejoicing about this time that is coming, that is spoken about throughout the first uh, verses 3 to 5, a little bit earlier, when the Lord, with his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, an inheritance that is reserved in heaven for us, and that will be revealed to us in the last time. The Christians to whom Peter is writing here are suffering a great deal, as we learned last week. There's a lot of persecution. I'm sure that many of them were not able to work. Some of them would, no doubt, have been excommunicated from their families and from their communities. They would have lost their friends. They would have lost their place in society. Some of them would no doubt be suffering even more severe persecution, perhaps physical persecution. We learned last week of how some were required to either renounce their faith or be sent into prison or to torture or to death. There was a great deal of suffering, but these Christians greatly rejoiced as they thought ahead to the time those last times when their salvation would be revealed in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and when they would know release and reprieve from these physical sufferings. You know, there's something that I think we generally find off-putting about, I'll just call it, spoiled brats who have no idea how good they have it and show no appreciation for the things that they have been handed, right? We often, I think, feel that way. 
talk about people born with a silver spoon in their mouths. They have so much and they don't appreciate it. They have no understanding of, of what they have and how they've been blessed. I wonder sometimes how much we appreciate all that we have in Christ. Do we really realize and rejoice in the things that God has given to us, that God has provided to us? These Christians greatly rejoiced. And I have to admit that sometimes I have a tinge of guilt when I read the passages in God's Word, God's Word, that talk about how we rejoice in the Lord always. How much do you rejoice in the Lord? I'm not rejoicing as I ought to rejoice. I know that. I am grateful for what God has given me, but it's good for us to remind ourselves from time to time of just how much God has blessed us and how rich we are in the Lord. And to remind ourselves of what God has in store for us who believe in him, who have faith in him, and to rejoice in that. These Christians rejoiced in what was coming. And I think their joy in all that they anticipated in the days ahead was enhanced by the fact that they were suffering so much in the present. There's a great contrast here between joy and trial in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. These people were going through times of pain and suffering, and yet we hear that they are rejoicing. And we think of these things as exclusive of one another too often, don't we? That if we're suffering, there cannot be joy. But here were Christians who were suffering greatly, and yet they rejoiced in the great hope that God had for them. A few things we might note about suffering here. First of all, we note this, that the suffering is for a while. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved with various trials. So the suffering that we endure when we have to go through those times of trial is but for a while. There is a great relief coming for us in the future day, in that time that's referred to. But for a time, there may be a period of trial. Secondly, we see this, that these trials are if need be. They aren't inevitable. Sometimes God calls us to a period of trial in our life, and sometimes we don't see that in our lives. But there may be times when God calls us to these periods of trial, if need be. Second, thirdly, we see that they are various, various trials. The trials come in many different formats. And uh, again, I just refer you back to Benton's message on Sunday, where he talked about the variety of ways in which trials come to us. And so verse 6 reminds us that trials come in a variety of forms, Sometimes God is disciplining us. Sometimes there is a shaping of our character that's required. Sometimes God allows things for the blessing of others. God allows trials in our lives for a variety of reasons. And then fourthly, we see this, that suffering and joy are not mutually exclusive. I've already referred to that. These Christians were suffering greatly, and yet they were rejoicing as well in the Lord. And I think we lose sight of that. They had joy despite the suffering. And in fact, I would say that from what I observe, their, their, their suffering enhanced their joy. 
And I think that can be the case sometimes in our own life and experience as well. As suffering can sometimes enhance our joy as we think about the relief that God is providing and the comfort that he will provide. Three sources of joy. First of all, there's this future glory. I mentioned that already, but in verse 7 we see it again, that the genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, perishes, though is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, glory, and revelation at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is future glory. Those who suffer appreciate all the more the liberation from that suffering that God will provide. They wait with eager anticipation for the freedom and the joy and the glory that is to come. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, we read this. I don't know if I've got this on the screen or not. Well, look at verse, you're in 1 Peter. Just turn a page over if you have your Bibles there. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. And when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Their joy is centered in the fact that there is a future. There is a hope. There is a deliverance. There is something coming from the Lord. There is future glory. There's, theirs is certainly a living hope. In our passage in chapter 1, and verse 3, we read about the living hope that they have. The abundant mercy which has begotten us again to a living hope. And for these Christians to whom Peter is writing, they have hope and it's a living hope. It's a hope that moves them forward in life. It's a hope that empowers them. It's a hope that drives them forward. It's a hope that gives them, that gives them energy to live their life that sustains them. I think sometimes the degree of our joy is proportional to our appreciation of the future glory that God has for us. And when we don't appreciate all that God is going to bring, our hope begins to fade. Consider the example of the Lord himself. From Hebrews chapter 12, therefore we also since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily ensnares, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the same, the shame, and has sat down the right hand of the throne of God. The Lord Jesus Christ rejoiced in his time of suffering he looked forward to the joy that lay before, and that uh, sustained him, if we could say, through this time of trial, and it can sustain us. There is a relationship between joy and faith, and the degree of joy and relief 
during times of, of suffering, the degree of that joy that's provided by the prospect of this future glory is related to the strength of our faith. But there's another thing that enhanced their, their joy or another source of their joy, and that is their love for the Lord. Look at verse 8. Whom having not seen, ye love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. They had joy at the thought of their love for the Lord. Their love for the Lord was a source of their joy. There's an interesting construction in this verse, which speaks to us about the past and the present and the future, whom having not seen, past tense, you love. Though now you do not see him, present tense, yet believing you rejoice. And then verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls, looking forward. And so all of these things span the period of time, the past, the present, and the future. Their love for the Lord carried through those times, but their period of rejoicing is present tense. They rejoice in the present with their love for the Lord through the past and the present and the future, which spurred them on. There is a, another source of their joy, and that is the privilege of salvation. They came to understand something of the great privilege of their salvation. In verse 5, we read of their salvation, who were kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed. And so the salvation that they enjoyed was, was a source of their, of their joy. Verse 9 speaks again of their salvation, which is to come a salvation, uh, the end of their faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, verse 10, the prophets have inquired. So their, their salvation is a source of joy, and it can be a source of joy for us as well, the privilege of salvation, a source of joy. This, this salvation, this grace that we experience in our day is not something that the Old Testament prophets knew or understood. Verses 10 to 12 tell us about the fact that these prophets of the Old Testament searched to try to understand what the salvation was about. And they came to understand that the message that they were delivering looked forward to a different time, spoke of a day that was to come. This uh, message that they had about a Messiah that was coming that would suffer and then be glorified had to do with a different age. It was for our benefit these things were written. And we are the ones who are in the benefit of these wonderful truths that these prophets of the Old Testament brought to light. It, uh, it is something that the Old Testament prophets came to know. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, These all died in faith. Wonderful examples of men and women of faith from Hebrews chapter 11. They died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. In verse 39 and 40, we read in Hebrews 11, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, 
that we should not be made perfect, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. They were waiting for something. It was something yet to come. And we are the beneficiaries of that something. And so now, as salvation has come through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have that wonderful message, and it should bring us joy. The prophet spoke about Christ's sufferings and glory. This section on 10 to 12, we could spend time looking into the Old Testament, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, looking at examples of how the Old Testament presents to us, the prophets of the Old Testament present to us the glories of Christ and the sufferings that, that, that he endured. We won't take time to do that, but I'll just point you to this wonderful summary that's given to us in Luke, in Matthew's Gospel. Actually, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. It's the Lord himself saying these words to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them the scriptures, the things concerning himself. These wonderful truths are not for the Old Testament prophets per se, but they are for our benefit. They're also not for angels. This passage reminds us in verse 12b, it says that um, these are things the angels desire to look into. Angels even would love to know more about this salvation, but it's not for their joy, it's for ours. And it's for their wonderment. And they look into these things. The word that's used here is the same word that's used of the apostles when they came to the tomb. They peered into the tomb to see the, 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 the reports that the body of the Lord had been taken away. Peered inquiringly, so the angels desire to see these things about salvation. Let's move on. The last two points are very short, so we'll just go quickly through them. Um, first of all, a second reason for suffering having a great value is that it develops godly character. It develops godly character. The pattern in Scripture is that there is first suffering and then glory. We see it repeatedly. And so in in Hebrews 11, we have the examples of the heroes of faith. And uh, in James chapter 1, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. The same word here is used of testing. These trials produce patience in our life. Patience will have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. Philippians 2 and 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does this mean? It means that, that we don't, it doesn't mean that we're acquiring our salvation by our efforts, but rather that, that as we work through these, these trials that the Lord brings into our life, our faith is developed. And as we follow the instructions, we find that there is times of suffering the Lord will allow into our life but glory follows. The result of these times of trial is that the dross is burned off and the pure gold uh, results. Thirdly, reasons for suffering is of great value is that it results in praise, honor, and glory. Verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may re may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is, in fact, 
a great future for us that God has provided. Great blessing. And we endure these times of difficulty looking forward to that day. In 2 Corinthians, we read that we should not lose heart and that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. There is a day coming when we will stand before the Lord and give an account for all that we have done. And we look for that time when there will be a reward for our faithfulness to the Lord, when that tested and tried faith will be rewarded. But more importantly, perhaps, is this, that it results in praise, honor, and glory to God. In fact, I would suggest that perhaps what's being referred to in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6 or 7 <coughs> is not praise, honor, and glory that comes to us, but praise, honor, and glory that comes to God. It is praise, honor, and glory to God that results from our faith being tested and tried and proved to be genuine. God receives glory for that. We read more about this in 1 Peter chapter 2, just a, a couple of pages over. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God on the day of visitation. Our standing up in times of trial, the people to whom Peter is writing are standing up in times when they're being persecuted. They're persevering in doing good. Despite the persecution, they're doing good. They're standing up for the Lord. And what's the result of that? God is glorified by their good works. We know that someday when we stand before the Lord, <clears throat> any, any crowns or rewards that he gives us, any commendation that we have, we read of the elders casting their crowns before the feet of the Lord. It's really given to the Lord in honor, anything that, that we have received from him. In summary, three reasons why Christian suffering is of value. Joy. It enhances our joy. It develops our character. It brings us glory. Today, I am recognizing that I have been alive for 23,000 972 days. Now, many of you probably wouldn't celebrate that number in particular. What does that mean? Maybe it doesn't mean a lot to many of you, but I've been thinking a lot about my father this week. And uh, I've lost the screen, but my father went to see his savior at 23,972 days, at my age, the age I am today. I don't know a lot about suffering, but my, my dad did know a little bit about it. Lots of people have suffered, and I know that there's many people who suffered more than my dad, but my dad knew a bit about suffering as he recovered at the age of about 21 years through the results of a plane crash, 
I've spoken a bit about him in the past, and I'll be repeating some things, but he's been on my mind. So bear with me. A year in the hospital, recovering from burns and and the injuries that he sustained in an, an airplane crash. And I know that he suffered a lot, in a lot of ways, for over a year as he went through the procedures to go through skin grafts and uh, all kinds of horrific treatments. Medicine then wasn't what it is today. He didn't talk a lot about that suffering. He didn't uh, dwell on it. I didn't hear him speak about it very much, but over the the years that I did have a chance to know him, 39 years, there were times from time to time when I got a bit of insight into what he went through during those times. Enough to understand that they were extremely painful and difficult. Halfway through his treatment after grafts were done in Ontario where he had uh, had the plane crash, the Air Force, he was, he was training to be a pilot. Uh, he, they thought he was well enough to transfer him to Calgary, to a hospital in Calgary, to continue his recovery there. And something happened during the process of transferring him from Ontario to Alberta that caused all of the skin grafts that he had undertaken to fail. He got to Calgary and they had to restart over again. I know that he, he, he went through a lot of suffering, but I can tell you that my father had a great joy at the prospect of the future. He suffered again for the, for the final five years of his life through cancer, as he struggled through cancer, as many people do. I don't know what my father's faith was like before he joined the Air Force. I don't know as a young man uh, how faithful he was to the Lord. I know he was a believer from a young age. But I know this, that after his experience of over a year in the hospital, going through all of the suffering that he did, his faith was impacted. He came out of that experience strong in faith, and he was a man who rejoiced at the prospect of what was ahead. He rejoiced in that day that is coming. He loved to sing a hymn, and I would hear him sometimes down in the basement. He would play his accordion and sing, as I was falling asleep in the bedroom above the basement rec room. I could hear the sound of his voice coming up. And his favorite tune, and the one that just has stuck with me all these years, his favorite song was this, When my life's work is ended, and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side. And his smile will be the first to welcome me. He loved that hymn. He loved that hymn because he rejoiced in the prospect of what was to come. This past week we had our men's Bible study, and Brian pointed us to this verse from Psalm 
17, and it brought tears to my eyes. People on the screen couldn't see it, couldn't see me. But it brought tears to my eyes because this was a verse my dad cherished in the last four weeks of his life. He shared it with us at that time. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awaken your likeness. He looked forward to that day when God's glory would be shared and he would have a part in it and he would be with his Savior. And I only pray that some, some part of that would rub off on me and on others that we would share that joy in the anticipation of the glories that God has in store for us and that that anticipation and that joy would carry us through to live strongly for him, that if our, our faith is tested by trials in life, that we would stand firm for our Lord, stand for him and be counted, looking for that day when the Lord will provide great relief, great salvation, deliverance from all the trials and the troubles that we face on this earth. Pray that would be the case for us. Turn it back over. Now, 